Right. Thank you, worship team. And uh, good morning again. We are ready to go this morning. Uh, again, so appreciative of all of our volunteers um, who put so much time and energy into what, what happens around here at Grace Point. Uh, well, how many of you were raking this weekend? All right. I was. All right. Yesterday, I was raking. All right. That's what I asked. How many were raking yesterday? So I'm raking yesterday, and here's what I thought. There's got to be a better way. And then I thought, we got to get the kids out here. <laughs> Welcome to our series called Arriving, in which really we're asking the question and kind of talking about this reality that throughout history, people have always thought there's got to be a better way to do whatever. There's got to be a better way for my marriage to work. There's got to be a better way to rake the leaves in the yard. Thus, we invent blowers, we invent big machines that go fast on the ground and suck stuff in, we invent vacuum cleaners for the yard and all kinds of stuff that we invent because there's got to be a better way to do whatever. And so this idea of arriving is this idea that we are here, you know, one spot in our lives, whether it's spiritually, okay, relationally, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our singleness, in our dating, and we kind of think, there's something better. There's something that could be done differently to get me further along to where I'd actually be more satisfied. And it's easy to see in other people, and we'll often hear the term, oh, they've arrived. Oh, they've, they've arrived. And we kind of say it tongue-in-cheek because we know that no one's arrived, but yet we kind of believe it halfway to that, man, they've arrived. They don't even have to rake their leaves. They pay somebody to rake it. Man, they've arrived. You know, that, all right? So we have this series called Arriving, in which we're really talking about the biblical concept of shalom, or peace, rest, fullness. Now, um, last week we talked about arriving in this way, and we, talk, we tried to define shalom this way. We said, essentially, at the bottom line, shalom is everything being the way it's supposed to be. In just the, the biggest picture we can imagine, this is shalom. Everything the way that it's supposed to be. The way God designed it in relationship with one another, in, a, in healthy relationships with each other, in a healthy relationship with God, that shalom is intensely relational. No one has shalom by themselves. Everything the way it's supposed to be. And yet our experience in this world tells us something very different. That there is no such thing as living constantly in a, peri- in a period of, of rest and fullness like this. So Lloyd uh, Corey, I believe, um, said this uh, briefly, and it's kind of comical and yet true. We, we can see this. He said that peace is that brief glorious moment in time where everyone stands around reloading. And isn't that what our experience is related to peace? Like, there's peace now, but just wait and conflict will come, right? I mean, haven't you experienced that in your family? No one has. That's fine, all right? Some have experienced that in their family. Haven't you experienced that in business, right, in money, in relationships? That Just give it time, and conflict will come, and tension will come, and stress will come. And peace, Lloyd Corey jokes, is that brief, glorious moment in time where everyone stands around reloading. And this has been our experience. And so what I tried to convince you of last week, and I'm going to try to drive away again, is, is this idea that you and I actually were made for something different than what we experience. That what we experience is not what we were made for. That if you go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, on the seventh day, God, after he created everything, rested. And he said, there's nothing more that I can do to make this any better. And that's the image of shalom, rest, peace, fullness. And it's in the image of a God 
who rests and who finds fullness, that we are made. And so we are made for shalom. We are made for covenant relationship, is what the Bible talks about, with God. We are made for that, right? That's our, our uh, you know, ideal. Our experience is different. This morning and, to, and next Sunday, we're going to talk about what's less than ideal. We're going to talk about our experience in life. And we're going to talk about why it is that we experience the, the stress, the trouble, and the brokenness that we do. This week will be a little um, more big picture, and next week will be even more practical on the struggle that we have related to Shalom, because it is, it is real and is true. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the, the first book of the Bible, Genesis again. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, is where we are going to start um, this morning. In a passage of Scripture that as you get there... You will find uh, to be familiar to you if you are a, uh, a church person. If you're not, you'll get familiar with it here in a hurry. Um, if you don't own a Bible, by the way, that Bible that you, are, that you will see around you in the pew around you is our gift to you. Uh, you can take that home with you um, and that just consider that our, our gift to you. We believe that the Bible is um, literally God's word to us. And so within that, we find life and truth and hope for the world. So it's our gift to you to give you that this morning if you don't own one. All right. So Genesis is the first book, Genesis chapter three. And um, if you are familiar with your Bible, you know that this is the passage in the, the section in your Bible where we begin talking about um, the ideal in the garden being, um, being corrupted by the problem of a three-letter word called sin. All right, we're going to talk about sin and how we feel that, about that and how we talk about that now. But we're going to talk about sin and the reality that it has violated shalom. So beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Well, verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he turned it down because he was a strong, loving leader. All right? So that's Genesis 3. All right? Genesis 3, 1 to 6 in my translation. All right? So we know what happened. All right? So, so Adam ate as well. All right? Um, and so here's the problem with sin. Um, sin enters the world upon the deception of the serpent. Uh, upon the deception of the servant, the, the cell is... Adam and Eve, there's something that you don't fully have. You don't have the knowledge of the Holy One. You don't have the knowledge of the Creator. You know enough to get around, but I just want to sell something to you. There's a a shortcut. There's a faster way to get what you really want. And here's what it is. Just, Just eat the fruit. There's a way to get after, to arrive at something that will be a better place than where you are right now. And I'm just telling you, here's the fastest way to get there. Just come and eat the fruit. And sin sells us this deception over and over and over again from, from the time of the garden until now. And sin sells the message, listen, there's something more that you want, and there's a fast way to get there, and here's what it is. 
Come, come with me, and here it is. It's just an issue of deception. It's an issue of selling you a rival, trying to sell you shalom in a way that will never bring to you shalom. So God has created us for something, and sin gets in the way of that. Now, here's the problem with sin. God hates sin, and here's what, I love the way Neil Plantinga writes about sin. It's kind of a funny name for a guy, but it's, he's an incredible thinker. He essentially wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, about sin. And I'm going to quote him three times this morning because he's really insightful in what he says. And so here's the first quote I want to hit you with on, on Plantinga. He, he writes this, that God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. God is for shalom and therefore against sin. All right? God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom. Because if you remember, shalom is intensely relational. It's the, the image of a fullness in relationship with God. Therefore, sin violates, breaks that relationship. In a more, um, more common image, think of it this way. Think of a, a father, not that I'm naming names, all right, who might be... Um, getting ready for his daughter to date boys. In case that might ever happen in 30 years, all right? So here's the thing. So a dumb boy comes over <clears throat> to take the heart of the daughter, all right? Well, what does dad do if a dumb boy shows up, right? I mean, we're talking about a, a fool boy, right? Not, not a... Not a boy that you'd look at and say, this is, this is, a, this is a good guy, but, but a boy who's, I mean, he's, he's the class clown, all right, or he's, you know, he's just getting in trouble regularly, right? He doesn't, he's just not, he's just bad news, and you know that as a dad, and somehow your daughter doesn't see that. No, this is, this is, this is hypothetical for me, but, but I know that this has happened in other places, right? So what, what does the dad do? I mean, what, is, what does a dad do when he sees and he has a vision and a perspective that his daughter does not have about a boy who's trying to take her heart? He doesn't sit back. <laughs> I mean, what's he going to do? And so this is, this is the image of sin, right? Sin is this fool that comes in that wants to take you from your father. Sin is this fool that comes in and wants to win your heart from what your dad knows is best for you. And this is the role that sin plays. It says, come on, it's going to be fun. Come on, I mean, I know your dad says you can't, but come on, seriously, you're going to listen? Look how old your dad is. Are you kidding? He doesn't know anything. Come on. It's going to be, everybody else is doing it. Come on, it's fun. Come on, it's fun. And this is the role that sin plays. It comes in and it wants to steal us, take our heart from what our Father has designed us to do and to be. Now, we agree with that in theory. And we can see the image, but here's the problem with us. When we, if I'm honest with you, when we talk about sin, it becomes uncomfortable quickly. Because who among us wants to sit here and judge, right, someone else for sin? Who among us, even in, even in the most personal of relationships we have, confesses sin to somebody else? Even with your brother or your, your sister or your mom or your dad, or your best friend who you will text when you're really struggling or who you'll, you know, private message or you're going to, you know, whatever. Even with the people who are closest to you, when is the last time you asked for prayer because you've sinned? Right? We just don't use the language of sin. We just don't use it. I mean, it feels so 
heavy and judgmental. Doesn't I mean, doesn't it? It feels so burdensome, and it feels so like old school, like people used to talk about sin, but now that we're enlightened, we don't talk about sin anymore because we're smarter than sin. And we're older, and so now we know better than to, to sin. And the language of sin just kind of fizzles away. And here's what we know. When we don't talk about things and identify them as what they are, then we get confused as to what's really happening in our lives. We don't identify something for what it is. We can't see it for what it is. Barry Jones wrote a book called Dwell, and in that book, and it's a great book, here's what he wrote. He said, increasingly the concept of sin has become something of a snicker word in our contemporary environment. The only things described as sinful anymore are those things that show up on dessert menus. Sin has become a word used to advertise our guilty pleasures. The character traits ancient monks used uh, to describe as the seven deadly sins don't evoke the same grave moral concern they once did. Rather, they seem to have subtly crept into the fabric of our social lives. And listen to the way he describes this. Pride becomes the key to personal success. Greed, the key to a successful economy. Envy and lust, the keys to a successful marketing campaign. Isn't that true? You know, that's what we'll, we'll push after. But we don't talk about, we don't confess a sin of pride to one another. Now, Plantinga writes it this way. He says this, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated it, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it, but the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation that you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. Isn't that true? Isn't that, true? Isn't that experience we have? Isn't that the experience? We, we just don't talk about the, the weightiness of it, and, and I get why. We don't talk about sin because there's a feeling that if we start talking about sin that I'm going to judge you and, and we're right to believe that what position am I in to judge you as, in terms of your sin. We're also afraid to talk about sin um, when we think about those around us who are just all about sin, 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 sin and who become the moral police of the culture. Okay? And that turns us off to say we're not the moral police of the culture. If you're a, a Bible person, you know that the Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world of sin, not the Christian's role to convict the world of sin. That's a big difference. And we've seen Christians who've tried to take it on their shoulders to convict the world of sin. It's not their job to convict the world of sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job. And therefore, we don't want to be associated with people who are just all about sin, 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 sin because that's not the kind of culture we want to communicate, and I, I get all that, I get all that. However, if we let sin go away in our conversation, if we let sin go away, here's, why I think, here's what I think happens. I think that we become confused as to the reason why we don't experience shalom. We can't put our finger on it. We lose sight of sin as a possibility. We just think it's just a matter of bad choices. If I made better choices, I would be able to whatever. I'm, the reason I'm not, I don't know why I'm not peaceful here. I don't know why I'm not experiencing wholeness and fullness. That the problem when we don't talk about sin as sin is that we can't see the landscape of what's really happening, even in our own lives. So let, let's talk about this at a, at a broad level. I think we'd agree that sin exists, okay? Even if, um, even if you're not a, a Bible person or a Christian, there would be a category in your world where at least you would say that evil exists. So let, let's put Hitler in that category. 
Okay? Most people would, would agree that we can put a Hitler in the category of evil. Now, that assumes that you have some kind of moral compass for determining right and wrong and evil and good and all that. But, but at least for Hitler, we can agree this is a guy who's in the category. If you want to call it evil and sin, I mean, what he did, unbelievable. All right, we'll call that evil and sin. And now, let's take it personally now. This past week, I, as, as well as many of you, struggled with the news that locally reported of the families in Lancaster County associated with the death of a three-year-old boy. Are you kidding me? The disgust that we have corporately over the torture and death of a three-year-old? I mean, I don't care. I don't care what faith system you have. That would be in the sin category. I mean, that would be in the evil category. Like, that, that is so wrong. It is so against. I mean, you talk about something that steals shalom and fullness. I mean, that is just right there. I mean, are you kidding me? So in the grossest of offenses, we would say that the category of evil and sin exists. The, the problem is moving it from there down to, to us is where the struggle becomes. See, we, we can see it in other people, and we can see it particularly with children. Uh, if we were to go back to the nursery or the toddler or the infant nursery this morning, um, we could see a child um, maybe kicking another kid or maybe hopefully not biting another kid, but sometimes that happens, all right? And certainly taking a block from another kid who got angry with that and someone chasing someone around the room or pushing them off the chair and all that. I mean, that's just, that's just kid stuff, right? Now, if, if we're thinking theologically, we could also say, well, that's selfishness. I mean, that, that's pride. And that, okay, now here we go as, as parents. I'm talking to you as parents now. In the right way, in the right manner, in the right tone, here's the invitation to talk to our children about sin. Okay? This is sin. Pride is sin. Selfishness, sin. Greed, I want it even though you had it, sin. So it's the language of what we talk about, not just Make better choices, honey, make better choices. It's about choices, make better choices. Yes, that's true, I'm for that. We talk about that in our home. But we also need to talk about sin. Because when we don't, we wonder, what stole peace from me? Why am I not satisfied? Where am I not happy? And here, if sin does this, if sin does what it did in the garden, and it shows up like the fool boyfriend trying to take the girl, it says, listen, come with me, come with me. All right, and I'm going to offer to you shalom and peace. Well, here's the deal. If we identify sin as sin and say every time that sin shows up, every time that sin shows up, it's offering you something it can't deliver on and it is stealing shalom from you. This becomes significant for how we deal with our own personal awareness of our faith and our own relationship with each other. It's important for us to be able to say, yes, sin creates brokenness all the time. Not all brokenness is a result of sin, all right? If you get, you know, the flu, you shouldn't start thinking, where did I sin? You need to start thinking, where did I not wash my hands, okay? And how do I take care of myself? All sin, though, leads to brokenness, all right? It just, that's just the way that it works. And when we don't talk about sin, we get confused as to why, why is my marriage not working, okay? Why in my personal life do I continue to wrestle with this habit? Where in my single life am I dissatisfied with my future? I mean, what, I seem to always be struggling with money. Why is that? 
And somewhere along the line, we have to ask the question, am I saying yes to sin? And this is a grace from God, all right? This is a grace from God to show us that every time sin shows up in our lives, we can see, we know what's coming. This fool is trying to steal our heart from our father. We can see that every time sin shows up, it is going to be a shortcut and it's going to vandalize or steal peace from us. It just will do that. That's the nature of sin. It is not the nature of choices. It is not the nature of mistakes. It is not the nature of bad judgment, but it is the nature of sin to do that. And so as you and I continue to grow and walk and have our faith, the matter of am I talking and seeing about sin in my life? Gossip, all right? Sexual impurity, all right? Uh, Pride and arrogance and greed. Businesses that just move after the bottom line and aren't interested in the welfare of the people around them, or social injustices, or my, my own um, tendency to believe the worst about you instead of the best about you, which is a, an arrogant um, pride in my own life. These things I need to identify as sin, because when I do, I have an aha moment. It's like, aha, like this is dumb. This, this, is, this is dumb. This is foolishness. It's foolishness to step into sin. It is foolishness to step into gossip. It is foolishness to step into sexual impurity. It is just foolishness to step into something that looks so good because I know that sin will always pull me away from the heart of my Father. And it brings clarity to say, "Uh uh-huh, sin exists and this is sin. Now, having said all that, Here's the amazing reality of the Christian message. The, 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 message, the Christian message is not just about sin. It is not just about the power of sin. The Christian message is actually about the greater power of grace. If I'm going to talk about sin, I need to talk about grace. Because the Christian message is not just about the power of sin, it's about the greater power of grace. In fact, grace is so much stronger than sin that it will go to the death to beat it, and it will win. It just will. Here's what um, Plantinga says about this uh, in in his work. He says, God wants shalom and will pay any price to get it back. Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. That as strong as sin is, as consistent as sin is, as perpetual as sin is in my life and in your life, that grace is even stronger. So I want to take you to Isaiah. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. But I want you to understand and feel and sense how hard and strong and, and firm God's grace comes after you and comes after me. All right? In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 7, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying, speaking of what will be, and he speaks about Jesus uh, coming up. And here's what he, he writes there. That surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Speaking about Jesus. And then he says in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. I mean, you look at the, the, the destruction on Jesus' body. The decision that Jesus makes to go into a city where he knew he'd be tortured. 
and killed. It's a decision of the strength of grace. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, verse 6, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her, shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I mean, what a picture. What a picture of the strength of grace, all right? The persistence of grace to out-pull, out-work, out-give, out-pain sin. Sin will not fight to the death for your soul, but grace will. That's just what God has done for us. And so as much as we talk about the need, and I, we, we need to speak about sin for clarity about what's happening in our own lives, but we also need to understand the power and the reach of grace that balances out a, a unhealthy perspective of sin that can become all about my sin and my failure when indeed the gospel message is about the grace of God reaching so far to you and to me. Now, what can we say in terms of so what? I want to come back to, to three things in terms of so what. Number one, that you were made for shalom. I want to convince you again that you were made in relationship to God. You were made to experience a fullness and wholeness in relationship to God that uh, is difficult to imagine because we don't experience it. But you were made for more than what we experience. That's just what we know biblically. We were made for shalom. Number two, sin will always steal shalom or life from you. Sin will always do this. And so you, you get at home and you get impatient, get impatient with your wife because she forgot to do something that was important to you. Wives don't get impatient with their husbands, I know that, but husbands sometimes get impatient with their wives. So let's talk about that for a minute. Might that be sin? All right, I mean, might that be sin? And if it is, might that be stealing the joy from your marriage that you wonder why it's not there anymore? Because if it's true that sin always takes life from you, and it's in its deception that it pulls you as a fool, it wants your heart coming to, to date you and wants you to come away from the will of your father. If sin always does that, then anytime I'm tempted to step into sin, I need to know I'm making a choice to have shalom taken from me. So let's talk about sexual impurity. All right, every time the temptation comes down the pike. Should you look at this? Should you listen to that? Should you read that? Should you watch that? Every time. If I step into that, is that sin? And if that's sin, why am I going to date a fool? It is guaranteed, this is the promise of sin, to vandalize, to steal shalom from you and from me. I mean, let's talk about all right, this is going to be a tough one. Let's talk about gluttony. All right? Let's not talk about gluttony. But, I mean, hey, let's talk about it, all right? I mean, the decision, right, just, just keep shoveling it in to make unhealthy habits, decisions related to, to how much I take in and not being able to say no to my passions. I mean, the decision to do that, is that sin when I can't put a lid on my passions? I mean, if it is, that which seems to promise you immediate fulfillment 
just biblically speaking, is guaranteed to steal it from you. You're going to wonder, why am I not healthy? Why am I not happy? Why am I not satisfied? Let's talk about sin. I don't like to talk about sin. It seems too heavy and judgmental a word. We've got to talk about it. We've got to talk about it as parents with our children. Not in a condemning way. Not in a heavy authoritarian way. But in a grace-filled, helpful, healing way. So our children can see the power of sin in life. Oh, so when I push Billy over, that's sin? Yeah, that's sin. It's also a bad choice, but it's a choice to sin. But listen, when you push little Billy over, God has offered you grace and forgiveness. You can be forgiven for that. Let's pray right now that God will forgive you for that, and let's talk grace. You are forgiven. It's the truth. Not just a bad choice to push Billy. It can be, should be talked about in the right way. So sin will always steal that from you. And so this is why it's so important to talk about it. Because it helps with clarity is to know why in the world? Why in the world am I not satisfied? Why in the world is my marriage not quite right? Why in the world have I been struggling with temptation? Why in the world is my money kind of out of order? Let's talk sin, right? Finally this. Grace <laughs> fights harder than sin. It just always will. And so hear that now, hear that clearly. That is the, the message of the gospel. That, that sin stinks. It is the fool that comes to, to steal your heart from the Father. It is the fool that comes that says, come on, there's a better way and there's a quick way and let's do this. But the, the will of the Father, right? Any good father in that situation, when the fool boyfriend comes to take the girl away, any good father is going to put his hunting license to work. Any good father is going to step in and with persistence, right, and with grace, but not with this heavy autonomy, this heavy, you know, anger come after the, the, the boy, but, but with, with a loving but consistent, persistent draw on his daughter who is his family member. He's going to say, come back, and here's why. I love you, and here's why. I've forgiven you even before you asked it, and here's why. Because the heart of the father is the heart of grace for his children. Going so far to punish his own son on the cross and allow him to be punished, allow him to be tortured on the cross, to make the decision to go to the cross, because grace will always fight harder than your sin. So this morning, do I want you to understand sin and that you are a sinner? Yes, Welcome to the club. Do I want you to understand the power of grace even more? Yes. Do I hope that in naming sin, it brings clarity to your individual choices, to your personal relationships and your relationship with God? Yes. That in naming sin, I hope that you do not feel this weight of shame, but rather a freedom to say, this is what it is. And we know, and in, in one of Jesus' disciples, John, he said, if you claim to be without sin, you are deceiving yourself. You are a liar, is what he says. You're a liar. So welcome to the club, but let's call it what it is, and then let's remember, the grace of God is stronger, more persistent, more consistent than anything that sin will ever bring to us. It's the loving heart of a father to draw his children back to him. One of the things that we do when we experience sin, is we tend to have recurring habits or behaviors of how we respond to sin. Next week, 
we're going to talk about those and how to address those behaviors, how we respond to sin together. All right? Be glad to have you back next week. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be together this morning talking about, again, a difficult issue, but one that we believe is right and true. That there is something in this world called sin and evil, and that in naming it so, we are not condemning or judging. That is not our role. It's the Holy Spirit's role to convict the world of sin. But as we see it and as we name it and as we own it, it brings clarity in our own lives that this is what's causing the vandalism of shalom. This is what's stealing life from me. This is what's stealing life from my family or my marriage. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us great grace to put all of this in the right perspective and to get after naming what is right to name, owning what is right to own, and trusting and remembering the grace of God in the whole process. Father, we thank you that you are God who has no equal, who is uh, so unlike anything we've experienced that you draw us with this mystery to you. So there is, we know as the song says, there's none like you and we recognize that. There's none who can offer to us the kind of grace that you offer and it's so outside of our experience yet we want to believe it's true. So help us remember that it is true even if we can't experience all of what shalom means here, that what you've called us to is indeed true. We love you, Father. We thank you for our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.